All right, I invite you to turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 this morning. Um, just want to thank you. Uh, when I first got up here this morning to start our service, uh, I didn't know how ready you were uh, to worship, but it became evident from the very first note of the first song that you came ready to worship Christ today. It was very encouraging to me uh, to hear you sing praise to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing that Baptists should love to sing about, it should be grace. The grace of God that appeared uh, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And uh, that's one thing we love to hear preached on, too. And today we get the privilege of uh, hearing that, uh, hearing a great text about that. As you're turning to Titus 2, let, my, let me just encourage you to be praying for uh, Pastor Ben, uh, but especially for Sarah Kilcup. Uh, this morning, contractions have started. Uh, so we just ask you to pray about that as they're in the hospital right now. And Lord willing, there'll be a birth today that we can all celebrate. Uh, so we look forward to uh, hearing all about that. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 uh, is our passage. And uh, it's been a few weeks since I, I had the opportunity to be in Titus with you. Last week, our family was, was uh, gone. Uh, and so... Uh, this week, um, I'd like to just start with is by recalling you your attention to Titus 2, 1 through 11, or actually 1 through 10. Uh, in those verses, Paul reveals to Titus how believers in different stations of life uh, should behave themselves on the island of, of Crete. Uh, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, he told Titus that he left him on the island originally to do two things. To point elders in every city, and, number two, to straighten out what remains. And so as Paul is straightening out, or Titus is straightening out the remaining things, uh, he is to uh, instruct older men and younger men, older women, younger women, and bond servants or slaves, how they should function in the home. I think this emphasis on the home in chapter 2 actually complements chapter 3. For as I understand this, Paul's argument uh, starts in the home, chapter 2, and how they should behave, and then advances in the first two verses of chapter 3 to how they should behave everywhere else. So in the home and outside of the home. And the argument, from my perspective, unfolds the same way in both chapters. He tells them what the expectations are in the home, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and what the expectations are outside the home, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, before he talks about how it's possible for them to behave in that way. How it's possible for them to behave that way in the home is answered with the very first word of chapter 2 and verse 11. For, giving them the way this will be possible. Okay? And then in chapter 3 and verse 3, again, the argument unfolds the same way. After telling them how to behave outside the home, he starts 3-3 with the word for. And he's going to tell them how behavior outside the home in a godly, respectable way is possible. And uh, so that's how this all unfolds. So this morning, we come to the theological explanation uh, for how believers can live godly lives in the home. Uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Now, it's been a joy for Carissa and I to raise five children. 
and to see them develop into adults. Just yesterday, we had the privilege of having a two-for-one senior picture uh, uh, take and uh, to see our uh, young daughters come into adulthood is so encouraging. Uh, one challenging time for some families in raising boys, uh, so the girls are accepted here, but in raising boys, uh, can be when they go through junior high. Uh, I've talked with a lot of parents. I've functioned this way myself as a parent. Uh, uh, I'm convinced that sometimes the brains of junior high boys temporarily disconnect uh, from the rest of their body when they go through their growth spurt. Since Andrew's not here, I'll talk about him. Uh, I remember when Andrew was 12. When he was 12, he was kind, thoughtful, serving, caring, and fairly observant. But then one day, he was not. When he was 12, it was nothing to see Andrew hold, not only hold the door open for others at church, but to hold the door open for many people. When he turned 14, he could barely get the door open. And uh, then it would slam, of course, in the face of elderly women. When he was 12, he would help his mother with chores, like doing, uh, taking in the groceries. When he was 14, I'm convinced that his mother could carry grocery bags past him every minute for several hours, and he wouldn't even know she was in the room. I remember that when this started, uh, I needed to sit down with Andrew a few times and talk through my expectations for him. I mean, his mother and I were counting on him for our retirement, uh, so... <laughs> He needed to be a functioning member of society. So, I explained two things to Andrew. First, I, expl- I explained how he should behave. Uh, what our expectations are, that he would serve, love, and be thoughtful for others. But then number two, I explained how that was possible for him to function this way. God had given him two arms, two legs. He was strong. God had given him a good mind to think about how he could care and serve others. So basically, for Andrew, I explained what our expectations were and how he could meet those expectations. With Paul the Apostle in this passage, he's already explained what his expectations are. Now he tells them how it's possible. Okay, verses 11 through 14. And so it starts very promptly in verse 11. How proper behavior is possible. Look at verse 11. For... The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In this verse, Paul specifies one incentive for faithful service, the saving grace of God. Believers should behave properly in Christian ways in the home because God's grace has appeared. Now in verse 11... When Paul says that God's grace has appeared bringing salvation for all the people, he's talking about what happened when. He's talking about what happened when the first coming of the Son of God occurred. The word appeared, verb appeared, is common language in the pastoral epistles. It composes a large part of Paul's Christology. The word appearing speaks of something coming into the light. In other Greek literature, it's often used of the appearance of a divine being. Now, Paul normally uses this word in the pastoral epistles and beyond to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Second appearance when he comes with great power and glory. 
Here, however, at the very beginning of this passage, he's talking about the first appearance of Jesus, the incarnation of the Son of God when he came to live, die, and be raised again by the power of God. Now, the way Paul talks about this, language is important in our Bibles, right? So, he could have said who appeared. He doesn't say who. He talks about what appeared at the first appearance of Jesus. Paul is describing what came into the light when the sovereign God of creation reached down from heaven and rescued undeserving sinners from the bondage of sin, from spiritual death and eternal separation from God. He is describing what happened when the incarnate Son of God broke into human history to save sinners. Okay? And for Paul, there is only one word that could be used to capture that moment. And that one word is grace. Thank you. Baptists love to talk about grace. Grace. God's unmerited, lavish, extravagant favor on undeserving people. Okay, now... What's very interesting about verses 11 through 14 is that the rest of the center all revolve, this, the sentence actually revolves all around the subject of grace. Grace. Now, Greek is very different than contemporary English. In contemporary English today, there is a tendency to make sentences simpler and simpler to increase people's ability to grasp that. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing at all, but in older English and in ancient Greek or Koine Greek, that was not the way at all. Sometimes sentences were complex, very complex, much longer. So verses 11 through 14 are one sentence in the original, and they're packed with information about grace. If you were to try to diagram verses 11 through 14, it would, it would take you, you know, a long time. Some of us would never get it, like me, you know, just, I quit, you know, just, okay, no, no more diagramming here with this passage. Paul keeps weaving things back and forth, relating them to grace. And he wants us to know that the only reason believers are saved or justified and the only way they truly are sanctified is a prevailing, unstoppable grace that does far more for them than save them. It also changes them. And so what I want to do is look at this text and see what we can learn about this grace. This is a form of review for some of us, but I'm sure we'll learn more along the way as well. Now, the first way he describes this grace that has broken through is he has said that it is the grace that bring, is bringing salvation for all people. Okay, so we're still in verse 11. Now, he is not talking about universalism here. Okay, he's not describing the salvation of every single person in the world. That would not make sense because of what he's saying in the rest of this passage. Okay, he's not teaching that. The Bible doesn't teach universalism, the saving of every single person. Okay, in this passage, we know that's not true because uh, in the rest of this passage, he keeps talking about us. He keeps talking about believers in Jesus Christ, those who have accepted him and have faith in him and, and the effect that that 
has had upon their lives. It also doesn't make much sense because of of the fact that in chapter 1, he had just blasted false teachers and opponents of his gospel, and he said that they were unable to perform any good work. So it would defy the logic of this passage to say that those opponents were saved, or would be saved. Instead, Paul says here in this first description of this grace that the salvation is for all kinds or all types of people. Salvation has appeared for all people, all kinds or types of people, whether they are young men or older men, whether they are young women or older women, whether they are masters or bond slaves. As we just sang in one of our songs, from each tribe and tongue and nation, you are leading sinners home. The salvation of God has appeared for all kinds and types of people through the appearance of of Jesus Christ. But then in verses 12 through 14, he continues. And he expounds on how this grace impacts us by saying that it is teaching us or training us to do some things. Look down at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What an amazing sentence. Okay? And the key tenet here is that grace is teaching or training us to do these things. That grace that appeared is training or teaching us to do certain things. As a matter of fact, the main idea, um, I did get this far in the diagram, the main idea is that grace teaches us that we should live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's the main idea. Grace teaches us that we should live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That is how we should live. Under control, righteously, godly, in this present age. Okay. We know the present age is no friend to grace or to godly living. And so we live these ways, under control, righteously, and godly, looking to Jesus and what he did 2,000 years ago and his appearance to train us, not what this present age would tell us. It's right or just or godly. But he continues. Again, this is an elaborate sentence. And he gives us more when when he uses this phrase, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I think when he uses that phrase, he's describing uh, how God's saving grace broke into our hearts, and this is a key point I'd emphasize, when we asked Jesus to save us. When we became believers at conversion, we renounced or denied two things, ungodly living 
and lust which come from this world. We said no to those things. We wanted Jesus more. No to ungodliness, which is everything in behavior and action that's opposed to God. All rebellion against him in any form. We said no to that. We said no to worldly lust. Strong desires that come out of this fallen world. Okay, so grace is here in this world. And for believers, it teaches us, it taught us how to renounce ungodliness and worldly lust and to now live under control righteously and godly. This present day and time, it teaches us the unique individual moment-by-moment lives that we are to lead as followers of Jesus Christ. That's what grace does. Okay. But there's more to learn. There's more in the sentence. In another significant movement, Paul tells us more about how grace teaches us to live. He says that we are to do all of this eagerly waiting for or looking for our blessed hope. This is an eager looking for something. Now, I've gotten, I think, two illustrations of this recently. Uh, Not too long ago, I flew up for a day of prayer in the city of Detroit. And when I came back, and I've noticed this more in the Virginia Beach airport, well, the Norfolk airport than most other airports, I think it's because of the military coming back. Okay, So when I came back, I made it through security on my way home, and there was a crowd of people waiting, eagerly looking. And every person who came through that gate was the object of their attention. They, I remember they looked at me, and then they looked at them. <laughs> okay. All right. That's an eager longing or waiting for the appearance of someone. Uh, another illustration of this might be the hospital waiting room or uh, a waiting room at the doctor's office. Okay. We, uh, when we go to the doctor's office and we're in the waiting room, we fully expect them to come and get us soon. Okay, we don't go there to live. We don't pack up, you know, two or three works, you know, weeks worth of stuff, take it with us. No, every time the inner door opens, we look up and we expect them to call our names so we can come in. Well, Paul's desire for believers here is to have a waiting room approach in life. And the object of the fixed gaze of believers is the appearance of our blessed hope. Okay. The great Christian hope. Well, what is the great Christian hope? He further describes it. It is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ the object of our fixed hope. The appearing of the glory of God, I think, would remind any reader familiar with their Old Testament scripture of the miraculous and powerful appearings of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Yet in this passage, the appearing of such glory comes in the visible return of Jesus Christ to this world. And make no mistake about it, While Jesus' first coming was lowly in appearance as a small baby in a manger, some stable, right, in Bethlehem, the appearing of Christ the second time will be, as this text says, 
glorious. The second appearing of Jesus Christ then tells us more about how it's possible to live godly in this present age. We, as believers, if you know Jesus Christ, we must live daily thinking that God's glory will soon be unleashed from the heavens at the return of Jesus Christ. That's how it's possible. If my son Andrew asked me, how is it possible to do it? How's it? If you're asking today, how is it possible to endure? How can I work through all the trials and difficulties and, and continue? How it's possible is we have gazes fixed, hearts set on the soon breaking through of the divine Son of God. From other passages, we know this moment for the church will come upon us quickly. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He says in another place, uh, he describes it as coming in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and at the sound of the last trump. So I tell you this, men and women, that whatever your presently experience in this day will one day be forgotten in the magnificence of what that glorious day will bring to you. Just yesterday, I had the privilege of taking care of my niece, little nine-year-old baby, and uh, as they were taking pictures, uh, you know, it was going to take a certain amount of time, then it was about double that time, and then, so I'm, I'm holding her, and I, I finally get her to go sleep. I was trying to get her to focus on anything in the room that would pacify her, okay? And it's amazing what she would stare at for the longest times, you know, like a little head of a pin or, you know, just little toys or whatever, and she's focused and on that, but she completely forgot about all of those things, all of those things that had her attention the moment her mother walk through the door, right? Then nothing else compared. We as believers tend to focus on so many different things. Our trials, our difficulties, the challenges of our day, challenges in our marriage, challenges with our health, challenges with our friends. But that moment Jesus returns, the only thing we'll see is Christ, the object of our gaze. But the long sentence continues in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself for us, the text says. He's our substitute He died on the cross in our place so that we could be forgiven by God. He gave himself, the text says, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to obtain our release from a tyrannical master that gripped us. And that master was lawlessness. Before conversion, we were enslaved in our human depravity to perform all kinds of law-breaking. But Jesus came to buy us back 
And then the text says to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He not only claimed us and redeeming us, he cleansed us so that we might be a special people for him. And finally in the text it says that not only are we a special people for him, but that we'd be a people zealous for good works. Again, as I said uh, weeks ago now, you know, Protestants sometimes get really twitchy when we come to talking about good works. Paul was not in the pastoral epistles. He's got nothing but good things to say about good works. It's a way for him to describe what practical Christian behavior looks like. Uh, This is what sound doctrine looks like in form. Believers are those who have been changed by the gospel to produce, and to borrow from the words of Paul in Ephesians 2.10, to produce the good works that God has before prepared that we should walk in them. Okay? Now to drive all of this home for us, and to drive all of it home for Titus, to show him the utmost importance of teaching all these things, he gives him verse 15. Right? And Uh, He explains how Titus should treat these things. Look at verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay. And I read that verse, like, as a pastor. I'm like, what? Well, how do you do these things? But of course, uh, what we need to realize here is Paul's addressing Titus as an apostle, fellow apostle, something a pastor's not. Although Paul doesn't give many imperatives in the letter in this book, he, he gives him imperatives here, he gives him commands, and he increases the intensity with each of those as he goes along. He says, declare or teach and exhort and rebuke with all authority. With all the authority God has given to you as an apostle, Titus must insist that these Cretan believers do these things, that they put these things into practice. And I think while Titus is always to be gracious and loving in his function as an apostle, he must insist on obedience to these things even when stubborn sinfulness is showing itself among professing believers in the island of Crete. Right? Let no one disregard you, Titus. Speaking to his commitments to teach these things, to exhort with these things, and to rebuke if necessary, if people professing faith in Christ step out of line. So today we've considered a significant passage about grace. It teaches us how we should live. When we fully and rightly consider the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, it changes life for us in this present age. I love how Martin Luther described the approach he attempted to take in life. He said, I attempted to live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming again tomorrow. 
As another reformer said it, he said, the light from two windows informs our lives. The light streaming in from Mount Calvary and the light streaming in from the Mount of Olives, where the Lord will return. Perhaps you're experiencing significant trials or struggles today. Health issues, sin failures, weaknesses in your own approach to life in this world. And you think, how is it even possible to keep going? Be encouraged, brother, sister. God's prevailing, unstoppable grace in Jesus Christ is training you how to live in this present age. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. He will give us grace, grace, and more grace to teach us how to live. This grace not only saves us, it sanctifies us into the image of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Uh, Lord, I know it's not the first time from this pulpit this passage has been preached. It's been preached in multiple ways by multiple preachers throughout our existence, and yet today it is just a, another good and stunning reminder to us. It reminds us of how lowly we are. We were like all people needing to be saved, needing something to appear. It informs us that what that was that appeared to save us, it was grace. It was God reaching down through his son to save us from our sins. Lord, this amazing grace that we have, this prevailing grace that overcomes all of our sinfulness, this Grace teaches us how to live in the present. We've renounced ungodliness and worldly lust, and we desire to live self-controlled, godly, and righteous in this present age. Lord, we pray that you'd help us through the Spirit to do that, that you'd make grace effective in our lives this week, day by day. To my brothers or sisters in Christ who perhaps are greatly discouraged because of indwelling sin, because of tension in the home, because of health struggles or challenges, Lord, I'd pray that they would remember that there is another appearing. That soon the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will appear. And Lord, we thank you for these things. Uh, it gives us hope uh, this present age is sandwiched between these two wonderful things, the grace of God at the first coming and the glory of God at the second. Lord, help us to live this way. Help us not to be distracted by the little objects of our gaze. Like that baby, right? The, the, 
the things that can pacify us in this present age. But, Lord, keep our focus on these things and the glory of our Savior. And I pray that it would help us this week. May it help my brothers and my sisters who find themselves struggling with sin to say no to sin and to walk with integrity before you, looking for you to break through. We thank you, Lord, for this, and we look forward to singing about that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.